And I mean, I can go on and on because some of the things are like, um, for example, how do we bring technology to a community that's regarded a slum, right? Mm -hmm. And the kids there are hungry Mm -hmm. and um, maybe the girls don't have feminine products. And I mean, really, you think a computer is on their (laughs) level of a need? No. Probably not, right? (laughs) And so I had partners who came and brought snacks for the kids. They would bring this this drink called Milo, which is um, from back home. It's like this really cool chocolatey drink. Milo just donated Milo for the kids like all the time. And then we have the feminine products donated. So there's a reason to come to the bus, right? Welcome to Wise and Wine, a play on the phrase, rise and shine. Now look here, folks. I've had five jobs in the last two years, and that shit just ain't normal. Or is it? No, no, it's not. So I'm turning to diverse people who inspire me both professionally and personally with careers that didn't exactly start at point A and end at point B. We'll explore how their families, their cultures, and their communities impacted their career decisions, as well as the exact moment they decided to pursue their passions, even if that passion wasn't a direct path to a pension or a 401k. Hopefully, I'll come away knowing how they became the badass, the confident, the strategic people that I admire. And if I don't come out of this project a little wiser, well, at least I'll enjoy the boozy wine ride. Your girl will be incommunicado for the next week, so hopefully technology cooperates with me and this episode drops as scheduled on Tuesday. If not, F this platform, I'm going to figure out something else. (laughs) But today's guest, please strap in because she is high energy and you are going to need to hang on to that front bar of your roller coaster. She is positive and energetic and delightful in the best way possible. So if you haven't had your morning coffee yet or your afternoon whiskey um, and you need a boost, she's your girl. So I was introduced to Lisa Wisner by my bestie. I think Lisa and my bestie were on some sort of work remote conference call. And in the way that only my bestie can do, the two of them became fast friends. And my bestie is like, I love her. You absolutely have to have her for the podcast. And so when I reached out to Lisa, I told her who I was. And she was like, yeah, of course, Um, your bestie is great. And I would do anything for her. So I was like, "Mm, love you guys. Love, love. Friends of friends of friends, making connections and networking. This is great. And so I did a little bit of research on Lisa before we got started and was freaking blown away because my bestie didn't tell me a ton about her. Um, But once I did my research, I knew why she referred me. And Lisa came from Kenya to the United States on a freaking golf scholarship. So you know how I love black people and predominantly white sports. So, you know, check number one. Check number two is she has a strong background in computer science and tech and coding. And again, you know me, love the opportunity to diversify STEM careers. So check two. Then I learned that Lisa 
was creating businesses where she's bringing tech and access to tech, not only to children, but also to diverse and underrepresented communities and underrepresented meaning largely economic um, and finding opportunities for people that don't have access to get access because in her words, access to technology is not a luxury. And she's 100% right. I remember one of my many jobs that I had um, because now I live in, in a rural community and one of my many jobs was to connect people to you know, jobs and careers. And the area of my focus of area was on high school students. And the line they were telling me hundreds of times was that, you know, college isn't made for everybody or not everybody is made for college. And we wanted to present these students in these rural communities with opportunities um, to learn about careers that didn't require college degrees, which on paper sounded amazing. Yes, sign me up for this. Um, You know, Scuba Steve is an electrician and he has built an amazing life for himself. I mean, if I had known back in the day that, you know, I could travel and buy a home and be financially secure in a way that he is um, by working as an electrician, I would have done that. I just, (laughs) I had the parents um, where college was not a a luxury college was, that's what you're doing. It wasn't, I didn't have any other choice. So knowing then what I know now, I would have become probably an electrician, especially being a black woman. There's not that many women in that field. And that's something that I found out. But when I was working at that organization, I did find out that there's a good level of parity that women electricians and plumbers and in some of those industries are paid equal to their counterparts. And so yeah, I was gung-ho and ready to have those conversations with the kids. But the longer I worked there, I realized, well, that was the only conversation they were having. And that there was a college coming to our town and learning how other colleges had tried to come here, but the community kind of pushed it away. And I just thought that was so strange about the push against this access. And, uh, you know, for them, it came down from what I understood, it came down to things like they didn't want their taxes raised and things like that, which understood. But again, thinking about your, you're living in a rural community, if you can have some of that access to higher education here versus having your students leave, isn't that the goal? And so, yeah, I had a real weird experience there where, yes, I absolutely agree. College is not for everybody, but for the people that it is for, I I think there should be information about beyond the finances, what college gives you access to beyond information and beyond technology. It's also about like study abroad opportunities. And if you're living on campus, hey, what's it like to live with somebody that's not like me and having to negotiate um, with another person in my living space? I think there's some skills that you really pick up from being in a university setting that, no, it's not unique. You can pick up these things other places, but you can also get them from college too. So I digress. Um, So yeah, I think her mission about creating opportunities for access to technology, not only here in the United States, but also she did some, a great program in Kenya, which she talks about. Um, But yeah, I just, I, I loved what she was talking about there. So check, check, check in terms of a guest that I have interest in. 
And the final check, as I'm doing my research, I realized, oh my gosh, she was on The Apprentice. <laughs> I had no idea. And of course, my bestie didn't tell me because that's not the most interesting about Lisa Wisner was that not that she was on the show, but of course, your girl's nosy and, and is obsessed with pop culture and reality TV. So I did some research there and found that Lisa made it to the top three, um, which is astounding in that show. And I was looking at old clips and and I think when she was the last of the three, they had to talk about, well, who would you vote in and why or who would you vote to leave and why? And the people... Um, who were against her were saying things like, well, she's not a very good um, people person and she's not a good team player. And if you listen to Lisa for 0.5 seconds, I don't know how that could possibly be true. But I've seen the show enough and I know the host is somebody that people don't always present 100% of the facts to. So yeah, I could see how in that situation, um, yeah, she she was doing what she needed to do. She needed to be that black woman who was head down working hard and working twice as hard. And people took that to mean she wasn't a team player, which again, if you listen to Lisa for five seconds and the kind of opportunity that she's created professionally um, for other people, it just doesn't make any freaking sense. But um, <laughs> Scuba Steve teases me. He's like, well, did you ask her about it? And did you ask her about it? And I'm like, well, no, not really. I mean, she didn't, she wasn't really forthcoming with it. I mean, it's in her bio and stuff, but I, I tend not to push my guest because who am I? I'm this tiny little podcast. I have, you know, four listeners, people that come on to be guests of my podcast. There's no advantage for them. I'm not elevating um, their platforms. I'm not giving them access to things that they don't already have access to. So I'm grateful for the time that they volunteer to spend with me. So I try not to be terribly controversial or, um, I don't know, I don't want to push them beyond what they want to push. I ask the questions. If they answer them, great. If they don't, that's great too. I will tell you, though, that she and I did talk about her time on The Apprentice before I started recording. So I did get the information that I wanted to get. Um, thank you, Lisa, for being so candid with me. Um, for those of you that did not, will not hear that, oh, well, there's clips out there. You can watch the show yourselves and see what happened. I would say the person that I saw on the show is very different than the person that i interviewed um, for my podcast. So I feel like she probably learned some lessons or maybe she had to mute herself a little bit to be on that show. But I absolutely love talking to her. Um, she is a breath of fresh air. So if you're listening to this, I would suggest listening to it before you've had your cup of coffee because she's going to boost you up. Or if you're having a lull in your day and you need kind of a spark of energy, this is the person to listen to. So without further ado, please enjoy my guest, Lisa Wisner. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to Wise and Wine. What are you drinking today? Oh my goodness. I'm so glad you asked. I actually just made myself some tea, some hibiscus tea. So I'm super excited to be enjoying this cup of tea with you. Yes. It's a cold rainy day. And again, when I started the podcast, I thought, oh, I'm just going to meet with people and we're going to have kind of a cocktail hour and be real social, but people are busy. <laughs> so yes, yes. We drink what we drink. Yes. 
So tell me about your career path and whatever that path looks like for you and, and kind of how your choices were influenced by your family, your culture, your community. Like, how did you end up where you are today? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I would say that is a lot of huge question, but I think the number one thing I like to say here is um, I guess it's because I didn't know. And so I think that's a really good answer of like, I'm here because I didn't know and I love it. And if I would have known, I don't even know if I would have picked this, but I still love it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can consider me, I call myself a talent development expert. Okay. And the way I see my role is essentially being a support system in our communities. So anybody who needs support, um, I love technology and I love people. And so I see myself as just bringing those two together to see how we can do better work, right? Better right. work together. Yeah. So my career path actually started off, I guess you could say, uh, most people think about their careers. Like, what, is your, what was your first job? What was your first interest? My first interest was computer science. So I got a degree in computer science. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, I came here to the United States to, to earn that degree, but I remember very clearly that the catalyst for that was actually not winning an award that I so feel like I deserved in my <laughs> high school. So we had, when I first joined, when I first uh, went to high school, the first, you know, when you're in first form, you, uh, we got our first computer lab and the teacher there was teaching everyone how to code. Fast forward four years later, you know, I I mean, that was my lunch break place. I would go to, to the computer lab just to hang out. It was the place to go. And I felt like I was doing pretty good there. I didn't, everybody was asking me questions. I was the person, right? And then they, they give the awards at, at the end of the four years and some other guy wins the computer science award. Mm -mm. And I literally felt like it's like being the MVP of a, the sport. And you're like, what? You know? <laughs> and that moment I felt like, did I not like, did I miss something here? Mm -hmm. I am better than, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking to my head how I missed that award. And mm -hmm. I remember thinking when I went into computer science, like that wasn't fair. And so I just made it a part of my life is to become really good. Right. And so, yeah, so I graduated the degree in computer science and I thought I was going to be a coder and I was going to be in the server room, just making things happen. And in fact, that was my first job was mm -hmm. being a system support specialist, helping with hardware, software issues. I mean, anyone hears you've done computer science, they think you can fix a computer. I don't know why, yeah. <laughs> but like, so I ended up in the office just being the person who did everything plus also the server work and then um I figured out how to automate my job like within six months and that was the really the catalyst to the career I have now okay. I started picking up projects just randomly at the company that I worked for so I started even teaching uh like I worked at a university so I started off by you know, just teaching the faculty how to use the database instead of us running scripts for them like why can't they learn how to use the database right exactly. so I started teaching them how to find funding opportunities they loved it so much that they were asking me to come to their meetings about funding opportunities so then I, we started teaching funding opportunities so I became a teacher and then I decided <laughs> well I might as well go get my master's in educational technology since I'm teaching people how to use technology right Fast forward, fell in love with ed tech. In fact, I would say as boldly as like every class, I felt like I was teaching the class. <laughs> it sounds really bad, but like I would come into the class with a computer science mind frame and everyone else who was in the class was an educator. So mm. they didn't really understand the technology side. So the classes were leaning more towards technology than leading education. So I, I was doing really well, right? Because I got the technology part down. Right. So um, yeah, so I felt like I was, everybody wanted me on their team. And, and that's when I started my first company. So I ended up um, starting a company called Texas Techies and um, actually was to teach kids how to code 
And uh, the reason I started it was because I just needed to make $3,000 a year, which sounds really weird right now <laughs> that I'm saying it, but I just needed to make an extra $3,000 to go home to visit my mom because I'm not uh, originally from here. Gotcha. And with the paycheck you get, you know, you're just like, oh, you know, I don't have enough. I got to make just extra money. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, I could teach kids how to code. Coding is like a language. I like, could be fun. Next thing you know, it just took off, right? Obviously, I was just doing it for 3000 made more than that. And then, you know, just amazing things happen. But yeah, that's pretty much, I would say, um, the growth of my career was just stepping out of my comfort zone, all of the I don't knows, right? So like, I didn't know that I would like teaching people. And, and I very quickly went into leadership, like I started um, getting interns. So I I had so much work to do that I started getting a ton of interns to work for me. Mm -hmm. Then I found that I like leading people. (laughs) So (laughs) Then I got jobs in leadership. So right. I started getting promoted. And next thing you know, I'm leading teams. And so, yeah, so I think I could say as far as my career path, it really is based off of, you know, not making a decision based off of what I know, like just stepping into what feels good and um, and, and the direction that feels like it's it's leading me in the right path. Right. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions because I, I think I'm 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 in the space of doing um, recruiting for engineers for engineering companies. So either recruiting interns or early career talent, and you know my background's in higher ed, so I had no idea that I would be doing recruiting or talent development. But now that I'm here, I'm realizing such what a huge industry it is, and and now looking at some of those, you know, the gaps in the early talent development and gaps going further back beyond the college, going back to elementary schools and filling those gaps in terms of knowledge and information and access for students of color. So tell me about your organizations, your businesses that you have now and, and how you decided to tap specifically into those markets. So I would say when I started my company, Texas Techies, it was really, it was called Little Texas Techies, right? Because I was going to teach kids how to code. And it was actually based off of an idea I had with my firstborn son. So my son's a leak. I wanted him to be the next Bill Gates. It's kind of my, <laughs> was my idea. So of when course. I was thinking of a business idea, I was like, well, I could, t- I could teach kids how to code. You know, I was just like, oh, and then I could t- teach his teachers how to code. And that would be my business. Like I would just teach the kids, right? Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, I realized um, after the business became successful, hired a team to actually run the business and 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 uh, do the work. I realized that the people who are benefiting greatly from the actual product, which is Texas Tech, is the experience to use a computer early, mm-hmm. right? In early childhood education, right. were the people who didn't have access. Because every time we, we would come and set up our mobile computer labs at the schools, right? So whether it's a preschool, or an elementary school they didn't have to have a computer lab we would come set it up and so we would set up the lab and if the kid who paid for the class wasn't there for some reason they were sick or their parent or they went on vacation or whatever we would always try to fill that spot because either we were gonna get a new student who would Mm -hmm. go home and go mom sign me up (laughs) or we would just be gifting somebody right and I found that every time that I would be gifting a kid who I would always see there and go, wow, that kid is probably never coming to computer classes because I can tell maybe he's comes from a single mom home or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I found mm-hmm. that the people who had less access to the technology are the ones who were doing better in the classes. Yeah. I wanted to teach those kids. They 
were remembering what they were told. They were not taking it for granted. And mm -hmm. so that's actually how the company evolved from having our Texas Techies program become a nonprofit organization called Power Up. And that's really like, it, it just became this thing where I saw there's a huge need for um, underrepresented communities and economically disadvantaged people mm -hmm. to have access to technology. Like it's not a luxury, right? It's not this thing that, oh, you know, if you can afford it, you know, go to the store, buy yourself that cute bag. No, this is like a need for life, you know? Right. And this is the other thing that, you know, when you're in college, you do a bunch of research. And I would say I literally started my company while I was doing my master's degree. So everything that my company is based off of, there's research behind it, like heavy, heavy research of why, 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 right? Right. I wrote papers. Let's just put it that way. I wrote papers about my business, which was really helpful when you're trying to get funding, okay? Yeah, for but sure. But I would say for sure, what I have found is that when you have a community and you leave people behind, your community will never become successful because you're always going to be operating at the lowest level of the people in your community. Mm. So that's where the power up myth like idea came, which was let's power up the communities because our economically disadvantaged team members who are in our community, right? We're all part of this community together. They need to rise up so that we we all can benefit from, for example, like if we digitize our, our water uh, readings, if we digitize all our processes for managing a city, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't provide the access to the people who don't have access, then how are you digitizing? You're not really digitizing because you're still going to have to do the manual process of people showing up to city halls to pay their, their bills, you know, right. to pay their water bill, right? It's not automated. If people don't know how to do online banking, who are you helping? Nobody, right? right? Mm -hmm. Because your community is always going to be stuck with doing the manual. Right. And so, yeah, so that's just where it came from was just understanding that the strongest communities, you know, tap into where, you know, we grow together, right? And I also learned this when I was teaching my son, right? So teaching him how to code here at home with mommy after school, you know, that's one thing. But if he's doing it at school with all his friends and they're doing it for like eight hours a day and all his friends are learning how to code together, he's learning faster, right? So he was learning faster being with his friends versus here with mommy. Right. So I would just say, you know, this idea that I had, you know, uh, now we tag it as bridging the digital divide is pretty much how we see it. You know, awesome. our mission is to help more communities understand that you must provide access to technology. It is not a luxury. It is a necessity to exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm finding that oops, I don't got a little bit of echo. I'm finding that too at the university level and looking at and even earlier so you think about all the early organizations like girls who code and then black girls that code and then the girl scouts now have a stem um component to it and then you know at the university level there's um i'm, I'm thinking specifically at the university of texas at austin they have a women in engineering program but then they have an equal opportunity in engineering program which is really more of the students of color and so I, I'm like, there's there's so much out there, which is amazing. But do you find that there's a point where these organizations that are helping are competing with each other? And how do yes. they work? And how do they work better together? Yeah, you know, and I think that's that used to be one of my taglines was it's not about competition, it's about capitalizing on our strengths. Mm. And so I think when we when we go into some of these um programs, you know, you have to understand whoever started, you know, Girls Who Code, you know, it's a great organization, but, you know, if, whether it's a nonprofit or if it's a for-profit organization, 
whether it's a nonprofit or whether it's a for-profit organization, you have to understand that it's a business and some people are earning an income mm-hmm. <laughs> from it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think on, from some respect, it's difficult, right? If they are, um, there's, there's really, there really are competing resources in the world. So, but what I would say is, you know, when we're thinking about there being too much, I don't think that there's too much. I think what it is, is that, um, that maybe there's just not enough opportunity, right? In in communities, right? I think right. I, I find that in bigger cities, all these all these chapters of girls who code, you know, black girls who code, they exist in these bigger cities, right? Yeah, but I'm talking rural, right? Mm. So I'm talking like, you know, your your whole state needs support, right? But like people will probably gravitate to where the funding is coming from, right? So the funding right. usually comes from the big companies and obviously they want to support the community that they directly serve. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I would say there's there's not, I would say one, there's not enough. <laughs> and two, we should all capitalize on our strengths. And so right. um, everybody just, I don't want to say stay in your lane, but if you want to start a new initiative and you know somebody else is already doing it, just bring them on, you know, and yeah. say, hey, let's do this together. Let's partner and it could even be bigger than our own team can start on their own. Yeah, for sure. And is there a good kind of strategy you've discovered on how to address or how to get um, organizations to attract or get to those rural areas? Because I think you're right. I think it's also a, a, a knowledge thing with the parents. Like if the parents see value in it, then the students will then see value in it, or at least the parents will encourage the students where because I live in a rural community now and that's really kind of where we get stuck is that the parents are like, eh, you don't need that. We're going to, you're going to make way more money as an electrician or a plumber or whatever. You don't need all Mm -hmm. of that. And it's like, Ooh, well, if we can't convince the parents, then how do the students who come home excited about this technology, where do they get that encouragement from if it's not coming at home in the rural areas? Yes, yes. And, you know, and some of it also has to do with, yes, the outlook of jobs, right? So what are they seeing as a good job to have? And I mean, we know maybe, you know, you're you're recruiting for engineering. So you know how much engineers get paid. Oh, my gosh. You know, they're at the top of the if there's a like a level of top 10 jobs, right? With mm-hmm. the highest income, we would say engineers, right? Computer mm-hmm. scientists, you know, tech, tech is it, right? Mm-hmm. And so the point here is, you know, the understanding of the job outlook is important and the access to those jobs has to do with access to technology. So, you know, one of the things I did when I launched Power Up, I actually did not launch it here in the United States. I launched Power Up in Kenya. And one of the ideas was to have a mobile computer lab that would go to the rural community where they may not have, Mm. well, in Kenya, we have some slums that don't have electricity. You know, there's just, there wouldn't be a spot to go set up a mobile lab. It just doesn't exist. So we set up bus a bus that would travel around solar panels with computers in there and it would show up to a certain location and that that was the constant so like monday it's gonna be over here tuesday it's gonna be over here and that's helpful for that just that visibility that okay there's something to do there's computer classes here during the day it's for kids and during the evening it's for teaching the adults who have to work all day right teaching them Maybe if, if it's Microsoft classes or whatever it is to just level up their skills and technology, right? I love that. The other thing with kids, to be honest, is you're not really teaching them how to code. They don't, nobody really wants to learn how to code, okay? Just like learning, like if, like right now, if you try to learn a language as an adult, right? It's hard. And the kids who speak multiple languages, they learned them when they were younger, right? Before they, you know, the languages we speak, we learned them during our window of opportunity, as it's called. When you're teaching kids to code, 
it just has to be fun, right? So we're talking like giving access to the, in the rural communities to not this conversation of come learn how to code. No one wants to do that. Not that I'm saying no one wants to do that, but yeah, kids want to play video games. So gamifying, you know, and so mm. one of the opportunities I had was I worked on a National Science Foundation grant and it was all about finding really creative ways of embedding embedding technology-based learning into gaming right so mm. how can you gamify coding right? right and there's so many programs out there that exist now that teach kids how to code but they don't know they're learning how to code you know right. and that's the power of um of games so that's so that's the thing i would say is um whether the parents want the kids to do it or not if you come with a program that's just like okay here play these games you know the kids are coding and they may not even realize it. And later, as they start to move up in their capabilities, they start making games. They start making animations. Right. And slowly by slowly here, they're learning how to code. By the time they get into high school, they're learning things that you're supposed to learn when you're in college, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the sky's the limit after that. So, um, yeah, I would say for the rural communities, it's just about... Um, visibility right mm -hmm. just making sure there's a con this constant access that is that is a that is accessible for the parents right so um it can't be like they have to drive an hour you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. To that library that has that class you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's not gonna happen <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah now i think about all, all that it would take to entail to start this business in terms of getting the, you know, especially with the mobile units, like all of the organizations you have to tap into to get the TVs, to get the buses, to get permission to be there. So when you were starting this, did you have an idea of the scope? And then how did you kind of pull that all together as you were developing these programs? Oh my god. That gosh. sounds okay. huge. It sounds yeah, like no, so it doesn't. Evil. It actually, let me tell you the reality of things, right? <laughs> when you're thinking about it while you wake up in the morning, you're like, I have an idea. I'm gonna go do this. <laughs> and in your mind, you're like, oh yes, and world peace. And then you start to do it and you're like, what is this monster? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So even like talking about permission, right? So, you know, government regulation, like is your company registered even to, in Kenya, right? To go do this? Like, are you even allowed to just, mm -hmm. you know, like, there was just so many things. Of course, I was just so grateful. So my sister, um, my, my whole entire family still lives in Kenya, except for me and my little sister, we're here in the United States. So I was just grateful that my big sister who, um, who lives in Kenya, she kind of took the lead. Of, she, she was the project manager for this. I had the idea and I told it to her and she just contacted so many different people and she pretty much pulled the whole thing together for me. Honestly, I have to say that because <laughs> I just knew what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do it in Kenya. And if you're not boots on the ground, there's absolutely no way you can do it. So mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, what, what it entails. Obviously you got to have a registered company clearly, otherwise right. no one's going to take you seriously. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the first thing was to find funding for the bus. Great thing is partnership. There was a company called Craft Silicon who was planning an initiative just like this. They had already secured a bus. So there we go. There's already okay. a bus available. And what they were going to do was give their team members an opportunity, the people who work for their company, an opportunity to volunteer by running the bus. So like this week, you could volunteer and you would just run the bus for the day. And then six months later, it's your turn again because everyone's kind of on a rotation. Mm -hmm. Love that, that concept. And they wanted to partner. And then obviously we needed computers. So we have partners like HP. We got a company called All Access Kenya to give us free internet. So we, wherever we went and dropped a site, we got free internet. Wow. And I mean, I can go on and on because some of the things are like, um, for example, how do we bring technology to a community that's regarded a slum, right? Mm -hmm. 
and the kids there are hungry mm-hmm. and um, maybe the girls don't have feminine products. And I mean, really, you think a computer is on their <laughs> level of a need? No. Probably not, right? <laughs> and so I had partners who came and brought snacks for the kids. Awesome. They would bring this, this drink called Milo, which is um, from back home. It's like this really cool chocolatey drink. Milo just donated Milo for the kids like all the time. <laughs> and then we have the feminine products donated. So there's a reason to come to the bus, right? right. There was just... There was so many people who came together to make it happen. But yes, what I would say is, um, yeah, you need boots on the ground, obviously, but you also need to, um, to it's like a, it's like starting a business, right? Anything right. that you try to do, you, you have to have um, systems and processes to make it happen. But most important, you have to have partners so that it's sustainable. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, what I'm learning about this side of the industry in, in, in terms of tech and, and getting disadvantaged and, and people of color into it, that it has to be the holistic approach. So kind of what you were talking about where you're bringing them here, but it's not just this one thing. We're not just focusing on technology. We're also focusing on health and, you know, food and all this other stuff. And so I'm thinking on my level, working with students, that it's not just about the tech. You have to be technical. You also have to learn how to work in this business environment, that soft skills about you know, coming into the office and not just working hard, being by yourself, you've got to learn how to network and you've got to learn how to ask questions. So are you finding that being an area of need in in kind of your programs where we're looking at not just the technical piece, but also the holistic, what does it mean to be somebody working in a tech industry in the future? Yes, I'm so glad you brought this up. Okay, so the other bonus of the job I had at the university was I got to run a program for increasing the number of underrepresented people in computer science, right? So we're talking women, people of color, minorities, right? So we got all this funding from, as you can imagine, how many companies in the world want that, right? So we have tons of money. So we would, we would part, we partner with Google. So Google is one of the partners we had and we were blessed. I'm saying blessed because, oh my gosh, loved that job to travel to Google and like host conferences there and take the kids there. Right. And Google at the same time as we were running the program was running this thing they they called project Aristotle. It was a research project to find out what made team members successful at Google. Right. So it took them two years to do this research. And what they found is that the number one reasons that the teams at Google were successful was not because they're the smartest engineers and the smartest computer scientists and they knew all the math, you know, it was because they created psychological safety on their teams. Mm. Team members trusted them. Mm. Team members trusted that we're going to, we're in this together. And team members were comfortable being vulnerable in front of each other. We're vulnerable to make, we can make mistakes and we're good, right? You know that I didn't make that mistake on purpose. Like I'm trying to do the best for all of us, right? Right. And so what Google found is that it was less about how smart you are. And in fact, there's a five point um, scale that has nothing to do with how smart you are. In fact, IQ they found was 10% of your success. They found 90% of your success was based off of emotional intelligence. And so it flipped the switch upside down on how we were teaching our kids in the computer science program at the university on how to be better scientists, right? Mm -hmm. You know, yes, you can learn how to code. It's a skill that you need to know how to do. But the most important reason you're going to be successful at that organization 
is by understanding what emotional intelligence is. Can you understand things from somebody else's perspective? Right. Are you able to understand where somebody's coming coming from? Do you have empathy, right? right? All those things are really what make a great person in general, right? But they make an even better engineer, even better <laughs> computer scientist, because now they can do it all, right? They're like code and they're creating the future, right? But they're also here as humans, right? They, we're, we're humanizing. And the way we tagged this was, we want you to have high touch and high tech because it's really important to just to be there in the middle. Right. And you were talking about the holistic approach of human of being a human. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it goes in part of um, of, you know, there are the education systems. Right. They focus on grades. Everyone must get an A, you know, and now oh, we want the person with the 4.0 GPA, you know. Google actually changed their entire hiring practices. I don't know if you if you're familiar with this. They changed their hiring practices where they they didn't even want to hire you if you like you don't even need to know how to code, right? Because <laughs> whatever you learn how to code at a university is not going to cut it for them. They're probably going to teach you a whole other language, right? Right. So um, so they changed their whole hiring practices to incorporate this whole concept of can you be on a team that and 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 sustain psychological safety on that team. <laughs> That's amazing. And so in terms of um, organizations like Google that have done it well, so what is it that they do well that other organizations are failing at in terms of recognizing that there needs to be more diverse people at the table, not only diverse in terms of skill level, but diverse in terms of what they're bringing uh, personality wise? Yes, yes, the full spectrum, the dimensions of diversity. There well, you okay? go. I like yeah, that. So we're talking about all levels, right? Um, from what you see, what you think you see of somebody, right? To also, you know, their experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, their acquired diversity, right? So um, what I can say here is, you know, paying attention to where you're recruiting. You know, um, if you're recruiting from the same place that you always recruit, then what are you going to get? You're going to get the same fish, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're fishing in the same pond, you're going to get the same fish. Mm -hmm. And then you're wondering why you're not innovating and why your business is failing, right? Yes. So the goal here is to expand the network. So you mentioned that you're a recruiter, right? So I would say, you know, ex the expansion of recruiting. So your network, Jennifer, of being in a more, maybe a diverse community, right, is it's so important to anybody who's recruiting because you'll be able to tap into that, right? And that's, I think, the power of an organization that understands what diversity means. It's you have to acquire the talent, right? It's mm -hmm. great when you acquire the talent, right? That you want in terms of smarts, they have the skill, they're a great engineer, whatever it is, but it's even better when they're not a cultural fit, but they're a cultural addition, right? Mm. It's great when people fit, but what if they bring something that's completely different that when they're in that conversation on that team and they're able to go, but hold on, what about this perspective? You know, yeah. mm -hmm. I, you know, that's the power of recruiting, right? That's the power of trying to find uh, from different networks, trying to find people from different networks. So making sure that your organization or like Google or whatever, they are uh, tapping into um, schools that they wouldn't normally tap into. So, you know, we have the Ivy Leagues that everybody wants to you from Harvard. They want you from Stanford, right? It's like, yeah, but like, is that working? No, you, we need to go to the under, we need to go to the underrepresented communities 
And so, yeah, so that's why I would say we start. But of course, there's, it's such a full spectrum, right? So once you have them in, how do you keep them in, right? You can't just have a revolving door. So internally, you have to do the heavy lift of making sure that you have institutionalization of um, inclusivity within the organization. So everybody feels like they belong. Right. And so that heavy lift has to do with employee buy-in, leadership buy-in. You know, everybody has to be involved in, um, in just building a culture where we respect each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too, and I and I love what you said. And I think about the talent development piece and the two words that drive me nuts in in recruiting and talent development is top talent. We need top talent. We need top talent. It's like ah, you you don't know what top talent means. Like, and also if we're recruiting the the students from Harvard with a four and blah 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 blah. What how, what how are we developing them if we and how are we keeping them loyal if we're looking at students from maybe disadvantaged um, universities and I say disadvantaged in terms of that's just the schools where the dollars don't go like the schools where Halliburton and Chevron aren't dumping millions of dollars into the schools the students that go to those schools and get some of that valuable experience with us they're going to be loyal. We're developing them. And and how do we get (laughs) the managers and everybody to think about those students too? It drives me nuts. Okay. So, and I know I'm probably talking too much about this because you're in my space right now. There's this (laughs) model called the super chicken model. Have you heard about it? No, tell me. Super chicken model. Okay. I love it. So there's this scientist, and um, I believe that the scientist kind of uh, brought multiple people together, but there's actually a TED Talk about this, and the TED Talk is talks about super chickens. So if anybody likes TED Talks, go watch this TED Talk. But the whole point here is that what they did is a research scientist was trying to find um, how they can um, create a super chicken. So you have the chicken that's like the most alert, and it's the fastest, and it's the biggest. And so if you could imagine if you could breed all the smartest and the fastest and the biggest and the cutest looking chickens together, what would you expect? You would expect that they would make better chickens, right? That, that oh, if you, if you put all the super chickens together, that there'll be, this will be a better colony of chickens, right? And they would thrive. Well, this study found that that's the complete opposite. Really? And if you have too many super chickens, they'll end up pecking each other to death uh, because <laughs> they're all trying to be super chickens. <laughs> but you forget that there's the usually the colony of chickens exists because you always need in a colony of chickens somebody who's who's cleaning. So you need the person who's cleaning and then you need the person who's comforting. So that person may not be going to hunt for food as much, but they're there to like, how are you doing? How's everyone doing? Right. And so it was this whole thing of realizing that when you're recruiting a team together, when you bring all those high achievers, those top talent together, what you're doing is you're creating a super chicken model where they're all going to peck each other because they're Mm -hmm. all trying to outdo each other Mm. versus having a team where everyone supports each other. Anyway, it's a great study. I love that study. And I (laughs) I always think of it and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're not all super chickens is sometimes what I like to say. We can't all be super chickens. Somebody's got to be helping. (laughs) Exactly. Somebody's got to be the the multidimensional person. I love it. Yes, yes. So clearly you live and breathe diversity, equity, inclusion in your professional and your personal life. Um, where does that come from for you? And, and, and how do you respond to these things when you're challenged from other, whether it's outside forces or maybe people that you're trying to partner with? Yeah, it's interesting how now the term DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion is a thing. And mm-hmm. when I was doing it, I didn't even realize that I was doing DEI because the first time I ever heard the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging, all that um, was through a video on LinkedIn. I'll never forget. And I watched it and I thought, 
yeah, but isn't everyone doing that? That's literally what I thought in my head. Like, there's a pro- there's programs for this. Are we doing this already? Like, what what is this that we're telling people to do that they should be doing already, right? And I realized right then and there that um, my experience growing up. So growing up as a Kenyan child, I was born into a multiplicity of cultures, and I mm. and I truly believe that I I didn't. And I know this might sound crazy, but I didn't realize that I was black until I got on a plane, came to the United States, and had to fill out a form and say I was black and then come and experience people judging you just because of the color of your skin. They know Mm. nothing about you. Even the way they're talking to you, like as though you're not even supposed to be in a certain place, you know, I I realized that when I got here. And so I think I've always had that thread of, you know, some people say, you know, oh, I can't believe that happened to you. And it's like, I'm glad that happened because that's, that's the pain that, that's the pain that gives you power. Mm. because I, I because I've had that experience anytime that I'm on a team anytime that I'm in, a, in an experience with the communities I remember how it felt to feel like an outsider mm. and I remember how it felt to not belong right and even though we are calling it diversity equity and inclusion yes we gave it a name and we gave people certifications for it right. <laughs> but the point here is I just like how can we be more human how can mm. we be more kind and conscious of each other that's mm-hmm. that's the whole point of it right isn't that the whole point yeah and so I think it comes from me having painful experiences of Mm. of actually i I don't want to say assimilating into the united states culture but but being removed from my comfort i guess you could say of being in kenya where Mm -hmm. hello everything was cool you know my mom is there (laughs) you know it's like you're with your family and then Mm -hmm. you get dropped into a whole other country and it's like oh my gosh you know they don't even understand right oh i don't know you know like anything here i don't even know where to go get my hair done like just so much happened to me. I know it's kind of like I'm giving you maybe too much information. No, no, not at all. You're speaking to me. So much happened that made me realize that, you know, and that made me realize that there needs to be space for people to be themselves. In fact, one of the things I did when I was at my university um, was I was I was part of a team that created an organization called the Islander Cultural Alliance. So at my university, we're called the Islanders. And um, so I wanted to create this group of people that just celebrated our cultures right instead of saying oh this is how they do it in america you know learn how to be an american it's like no we're all who we are for a reason right and let's capitalize on each other's strengths and Mm -hmm. so um so yeah so i I would just say it's it's from the very beginning (laughs) of of i guess you could say my leadership growing my leadership wings right i know i was doing some research about you and saw an interview where you said you didn't even know that black, you know, where you're from black history month is not a thing. <laughs> yes, so you come yes. to the state and are like, wait, what is this? <laughs> what was, what was kind of your experience when you realized, Oh, black history month is a thing. And then being of two cultures, uh, how do you, how do you kind of integrate that into your son's learning and, and how do you teach them? Because yeah. I guess, are, are they growing up in the States? So it's always been a part of their lives, unlike yours? Yes, yes. So my boys are very, very American, obviously. They're um, born here and um, raised here. We do travel, obviously, before COVID. We would go at least once a year to visit my mom and my family back home because, hello, that's where everybody is. And they're yeah. wondering why I'm still here, first of all. But the point is... Um, I just, I'll never forget. So Black History Month, I remember seeing signs, right? So if you're in a university, you see the the the, the posters, right? And you're mm-hmm. like, what is this Black History Month? I mean, you really start to realize that people are looking at you by the color of your skin. And it's so scary when you didn't grow up 
like that. Mm. I didn't grow up feeling like people were watching me because I was black. Right. right. So, and here I am. Um, I don't know if um, your audience would be happy to know, but like I came here playing golf, which is mm. predominantly a white man sport here in the United States. Right. right. Obviously in Kenya, Kenya's got a whole bunch of black people. So like, <laughs> obviously when I was in Kenya, it was not a predominantly white sport. Okay. We were really? black people playing golf. So I would say that uh, when I came here, I knew immediately some of it because just the stairs, right? And people would follow you on the golf course or during a tournament. And I'd be like, you don't even know me. Go watch some other kid, you know? Right. Like, go watch your parent, go watch your child, you know? But they're watching because, oh my gosh, you know, it almost felt like, let's go see this person, you know, hit their shot, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's see, you know? And then, oh yeah, you know, like all those little whispers or whatever, right? And so- you know, what I can say um, in terms of, oh, I'm sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. Kids. <laughs> kids, 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 Black History Month, kids. Me, you're bringing me into this moment of, I'm, I'm thinking of like how weird it was to try to be so good at something. I'm so afraid of where I am, first of all. And then I'm trying to be good at this sport that's a hard sport. And then I'm really worried about everybody's watching me. Stop watching me. Why are you watching me? This right. is an independent sport. Nobody watches you. They just look at your score at the end. Stop following you know? <laughs> Anyway, the point is that when I heard about Black History Month, I remember thinking that was a recognition for me that we didn't learn enough about world history, I guess, in Kenya. And if we did, I wasn't paying attention because I was a sports person. So school, if I if it was if it had nothing to do with me getting an A, like I was like, okay, dude, I got to see. We're good. We're good. I can go play my soccer, my field hockey. We're good. Anyway, the point is that. When I learned about Black History Month, I learned about the difficulties that that happened that led into why we have Black History Month. It's the celebration of the Black experience here in the United States because of the atrocities, because of the negative, um, I guess you could say, experience of Blacks in in the United States, right? Right, right. But then um, another side of that spectrum was uh, my curiosity, which led me into um, finding out more. And um, and then I ended up through ICA, you know, we ended up the Islander Cultural Alliance. We ended up just celebrating life in terms of the Black experience, music, cooking, you know, all the amazing things that have to do with the Blackness here in the United States. And, you know, it influences the entire world. Right. right. So. For me, Black History Month actually ended up becoming a really fun time for me. Um, I would say just any time that um, there's things happening that just remind you of home, <laughs> you want to be there, right? Yeah. So um, for my family, you know, I think my boys, um, they they know that I speak, obviously I speak a different language, right? I speak um, uh, Swahili, speak Kikuyu. So I don't hold back. I speak to them in those languages, but what, especially when I'm upset, you know, oh, I bring it in. <laughs> we travel to visit um, home. We, we talk to my mom at least once or once a um at least once a day or you know at least two times a week you know we're calling um just to visit so they know um about my family back home but i think that you know everything has to do with your child's experience of what you're experiencing and i think sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves as parents when we think oh i need to teach my child about this it's like well the reason you feel like you need to teach your child about that is because you're not giving them that experience so anytime i'm going to go give a speaking engagement or if i'm going to an event or something i always try to figure out you know i don't know if you've ever gone to like a, a gala or like a big dinner and then there's always maybe sometimes those parents who bring their kids and it's like it's all adults but then there's a there's a there's a table there and there's kids there's also kids at that table that's Mm -hmm. me because I always feel like the the whole concept here of life is to show the diversity of perspectives right Mm -hmm. and if your kids all they see is 
you know, they don't see real adulting and all they see is your adulting. How are they going to learn how to how to live with other people? Right. right. So I've, I've just always been an advocate of giving that. Um, what, 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 what does my family call it? They call it cellular learning learning with your cells versus learning by just reading from a book. It's different. It's different when you experience it. So, um, and I mean, we're talking about the black experience, but I mean, we travel, you know, we go to Asia before the pandemic, you know, life was great to just travel. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I think that that's my mission, you know, like, remember, I just wanted to make that $3,000 because I had my firstborn son. I needed to at least go home once a, once a year to visit my mom. And I've made that commitment for that, for him to have that experience. Of course, now I have three children. We're doing that. But I would say even beyond that, we have to be able to see this, you know, we have to be able to see the beauty that the world has. And sometimes you go some places and it's so different and that's good, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's not good, right? So I've, I have traveled to places, um, you know, and I, I hate to say this, especially like Asia, like where it's just, you know, very discriminatory and it's very obvious, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, but it's a good experience, I think, for my children, especially when somebody makes a negative comment and you're to you and your children are there and they hear you and they hear how you respond. That's teaching, right? Yeah. Not saying this is how you respond if somebody says this. The teaching is in the experience, in being in a place where, you know, you're sort of checking somebody out in right. front of them so they understand that uh, there's multiple experiences on this earth. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing from you is really about being modeling and really showing people how it's done and showing people how you can have access to these things and how you can behave and how you can have access to tech. And I think that's really a lot of what you're doing is just like, Hey, let's, let's expose people to different ways of living and different ways of what's out there. So I love that. I love that about you. And you do it with so much energy. I have no idea when you sleep, you were so energetic. (laughs) And okay. You too. But also let me tell you, you brought it together so well, because yes, that's the point is no matter what it is you want somebody to do, you cannot make anyone do anything. And if you make them do it, either you, you're paying them and so they need they need you because they have to pay their mortgage or something, mm-hmm. or you're forcing them, you know, the carrot and the stick, stick you know, concept. It doesn't matter because sometimes even rewards don't work. Somebody has to have an emotional why and you're never going to force it on them. Like you can't force kids to go to computer science. You can't force them to do engineering, right? But you can show them and then see if they're interested in it, right? And that's my point, you know? Like, I think the point there is like, you, you should never feel like if you're in a situation where you're trying to increase the level of something or you're trying to make a community or a group of kids do something, you can't make them. You can just mm-hmm. show them that experience and see who's interested in it. There's so many different, there's what, 7 billion people on this planet? Come on. Come there's not going to be like, all the kids are going to want to do computer science. No, just like I don't want to be a doctor and I don't want to be a nurse and I don't want to be a police officer, you know, but there's people for that. There's people who want that. And we we need people that want to do that because that's what keeps us all going. Because I need safety. I need security. I need somebody, when I call 911, I need somebody to come and help me, you know? (laughs) And when I go to the hospital, oh my gosh, I need a doctor, right? So I definitely need nurses. Oh my gosh. You know, when, when you have children, you value nurses more than you can imagine because you're in the hospital and that's that's who takes care of you is the nurses. Yeah. So, and you have yeah. boys, so I can't imagine the kind of shenanigans that little boys get into just jumping <laughs> off of stuff and being further. Um, yeah. I, I, we are at time and I know you have other things to do. So please, 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 thank you for your time. I loved speaking with you. Your energy is infectious. I'm going to go run three miles now because I'm so excited. But tell my 
for listeners where they can find you, where they can find your organizations, all of that good stuff? Sure. Uh, you can always just Google Lisa Wisner. And I think I'm the only Lisa, L-I-Z-A Wisner that posts all her stuff online. <laughs> so I should come up as a number one search. And then of course, I have my website, lisawisner.com. I'm on all the social medias, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. So do, however you want to reach me, you'll be able to find me. All right. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jennifer. This is right. awesome.